Hey, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I hope everybody had a great 4th of July. I also hope you still have your fingers and toes and other appendages after blowing off a bunch of fireworks. But it's great to be here. Uh, this is the first of three shows this week. We are expanding into a three-show week now, which will be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I'm excited about that. More guests, more fun, and more sharing for you guys. Because just to let you know on an update on our download numbers for our podcast version of this we are only six away from 700 downloads and that is since the the end of march march 29th so i think we've gained um most of the gains have been in may and june so the last couple months we have really really gained momentum so i'm real excited um i want to thank some people i want to thank a few people um monica funk Tisa Muse and Pat Yote, I hope it's Yote or Yote, for donating some funds to us to keep this show on the air. Uh, that's really sweet, really sweet of you, and um, that's what we need to keep this show on the air. As you can see down there, we've got help bring us some more exciting, informative guests to the show. You know, if you help, if you donate, we're because this, this team is nonprofit, so uh, we don't make any money at this. We just go out and help people with their ghost problems and tell stories, real informative stories on the air. Anyway, tonight I've got a special one. I'm, as everybody knows, I'm a journalist. I get to put my journalism hat on today. And I am a, I'm not going to say space nut because that sounds weird, but I have been into the space program since I was a kid. And to give you an idea how long I've been into like reading about the space program, when I was reading books, Okay, they still said that man was going to eventually go to the moon. That's how that's how long ago it was. And so I've read and grabbed over the years. I have grabbed and I have read everything I can get my hands on. And uh, so that and that's not and that's including what you know, watching movies like The Right Stuff, watching the current TV series The Right Stuff on Nat Geo. I mean, I just love that stuff. Anything like that, you know, and space cowboys, whatever. But you know, every anything and everything I get a hold of. And the gentleman I have on, Ryan S. Walters, tonight, he has done extensive research in the Apollo program and especially Apollo One. Um, that uh, during a training, uh, d yeah, during a training session for three of our astronauts, a fire happened and they couldn't get out and they all perished on the launching pad. It was a dress rehearsal up at the top of a Saturn rocket when this happened. And uh, it's interesting because one of the astronauts, Gus Grissom, had been in the Mercury program and had flown, 
you know, an orbital flight around the Earth, and and uh, you know, he was on his way to greater things. But uh, unfortunately, this happened, and it'd be, it'll be nice to talk with Brian to get some more in-depth details about what you know, what you know, what exactly happened went wrong that day. So I'm your host, Charlotte. I'm going to be with you for the hour, and I hope that you enjoy the show. And I know there's really nothing to enjoy about a sad thing like this, but maybe you'll learn something. It's like me, like I'm going to learn something for sure. Okay, here we go. And there are no orbs behind me. There is a a moth flying, guys. So don't get excited and scream orb. Hello, Ryan. Hey, how you doing? Really good, sir. It's great. It's great to have you on. Do you want to see me? Yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> you look like a ghost. We, yeah. we can't have ghosts on my show. Yeah. Well, I kind of thought it would be better. How's that? How's yeah, that? Yeah. There How's you that? go. Yeah. For a second there, I thought I had a ghost. Woo. Well, it kind of fits with your show, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it's perfectly with my show. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I wasn't prepared Tell to be to be visualized, but hey, that's okay. You look great. Well, thank you. You look fine. Doesn't you look fine, guys? Yeah. See, they're all clapping. Okay. Virtual claps, but they're clapping. <laughs> <laughs> so tell everyone a little bit about yourself, sir. Well, I live in North Texas. I teach history at Collin College, two-year college uh, at the Wiley, Texas campus. Uh, I'm a historian and a writer, and uh, that's, that's not actually not that much to tell. Other than that, I'm I'm pretty boring guy. Me too, actually. You know, I do ghost hunting and then I stay home all day. You know what I mean? That's, that's right. it. Listen, listen yeah. to evidence, and that's it. I get, I get my. I have my books, by... and you know, yeah. I like it. I like a dusty archives. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm that kind of guy. You know. There you go. See, I get my thrills by getting goosed by a ghost. So I mean, you know, yeah. whatever yeah, grabs right. you, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so exactly. what got what got you into researching Apollo One, sir? Well, I'm kind of like you. I've always been a space buff since I was, you know, just a kid. Um, you know, of course, every kid, I guess, has dreams of going in space. And, I, you know, I was no different. And I thought about being a pilot. But the problem is um, I can't do math. And you kind of have to know math. <laughs> and uh, I, if you, you can see, I, I can't see either. So <laughs> they don't let you fly. If you can't do math and you can't see, you're not going very far. But uh, I was—I'm a historian, so I just enjoyed that aspect of history. It's a good part of the Cold War, and you have to keep that really in the Cold War context. And I always wanted to do a book on uh, the space program. Generally, what I do is political history. Mm -hmm. um, I've written on politics, and you know, I've I got a book coming out on Warren Harding in February and I'm working one on Vietnam. So I usually do that kind of stuff, but I said, you know, I, I want to do something on the space program. And um, I thought about different aspects, but I said, you know, nobody's really done one on the Apollo one fire mm -hmm. uh, and why that was important. So I got to thinking about that one night and I said, you know, I, I think I need to look into that. And there's only been one book that was written back in 1969, a couple of years after the fire. And it was really a very anti-NASA uh, polemic really trashed the space program. It's called Murder on Pad 34. So you can kind of hmm. give you an idea of what it was about. I mean, you don't have to, that's the kind of book you don't even have to read. I mean, you know what the guy's going to say about it. So, so we need something, we need to be updated. We need, we need, because these guys, uh, there's a danger that this part of history might get lost. I mean, I teach mm -hmm. my students, but you'd be surprised how many people don't really know that there was a tragedy back in the Apollo days. They know about Challenger or Columbia, but they don't know about 
uh, the Apollo tragedy. And it's very, very important because we wouldn't have made the moon, in my opinion, without that tragedy. Right. And poor Gus Grissom, he really got it. I mean, he, he got it the first time around, and then he got he really got it this time. Yeah, he had a little problem on his Mercury mission. Most people have seen the right stuff, probably familiar with what happened on his Mercury mission. Gus Grissom was, the, as you said, an original Mercury astronaut. He was the uh, <clears throat> second American in space. Um, like Alan Shepard did a, did a simple uh, suborbital flight, uh, July the 21st, 1961. And then upon, because those suborbitals are only up and down, right. about 15 minutes. We didn't have a booster strong enough to get us in orbit in 1961. And when he splashed down, the hatch blew. Uh, spacecraft filled with water. He nearly drowned. Um, and it sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. He had to answer a lot of questions because a lot of people thought it was pilot error that he had somehow uh, maybe panicked and hit the, hit the button or had something loose around in the spacecraft and, and, and blew, uh, that, blew the hatch. So he had a lot of questions. He wasn't received as a hero after his mission. And he had to kind of, you know, sort of rebuild his image. But he bounced back with Gemini. The Gemini program after Mercury was very successful. And Gus Grissom was a major part of that. He was a big, he was, a, he was uh, one of the main, um, he was the basically the only astronaut. He's one of the best engineers in the Corps, and they put him in charge of helping construct and build the Gemini spacecraft. And they nicknamed it the Gus Mobile because he was so much a part of that. And of course, he was a natural to be the first Apollo uh, commander. What do you think, really quick, before we get into this? What do you think of the new TV series? Oh, I liked it. Of course, you know they canceled it. Um, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a bummer. I was yeah, looking forward yeah. to season. They did a good job on it, I thought, with the actors and, and, the, and the quality of the production. I was really interested in it and watched all the episodes. But yeah, I think it's only been about a month or so ago they announced that they were canceling it. I don't know if they'll pick it up later. I don't know if this is because of COVID. I mean, Disney's right. lost a lot of money. They may bring it back. I hope they do because well, I didn't really great, like the movie. Yeah, the that 1983 was a great film. show. And also, there's a lot of significance to that now because that that woman, what what is her name, that that 82 year old astronaut, is going to be going up with Jeff Bezos. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Just remember, yeah. remember yeah. in the movie mm -hmm. or, or the TV show, they, they they were starting to train the women to be astronauts. Right, right. Yeah, in some of the in some of the Mercury wives mm -hmm. um, were involved in that. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. I was kind of happy to see him do that. So I'll be watching that. Uh, a lot more of that stuff going on. I think. I think. Uh, didn't Branson say he was going up this month? Yeah. Every, every, everybody's going in space all of a sudden. Well, I just but. thought it was interesting with the TV series because I, I had no idea that any of the wives knew how to fly. Yeah, apparently several of them did. There was a, there was actually a, there's actually a good book on that called The Mercury 13 about some of the early women pilots and, and wanting to be at, of course, back in those days. Of course, the yeah. Russians sent one up in the 60s, you know, uh, the first woman in space. Um, was by the Russians, and we didn't send one up until Sally Ride in 1983, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. So we we were we were behind the curve on that one, but uh, yeah, a lot of them a lot of them wanted to do that. They just weren't allowed to. Now, with the uh, Apollo missions, because you know there, there was that issue with the the door with with Gus Grissom, right? But people, don't, I don't know if it was for sure the same with the Apollo missions, but what people don't realize is when these guys were put in these capsules, it wasn't like they could pop a door open. It, right. They literally wrenched them in, in those things and shut the door, right? Right. And the original Mercury program, they had explosive bolts 
that they put in there to blow it out if you needed to get out. And that was upon splashdown. But mm -hmm. they finally determined, for the most part, that it was probably a technical malfunction on Gus's capsule. And so they got to thinking about it. They said, you know, what if that happens in space? They're, they're all dead. I mean, the crew's dead in a microsecond. Um, you're dead before you know you're dead. That's how fast it'll kill you in space. So they took the explosive bolts out. Okay. And in the original Apollo capsule that they constructed, what they called the block ones, the one that killed Gus, mm -hmm. uh, Ed White and Roger Chaffee in the Apollo one disaster was a very complex hatch that took several minutes to get off. I mean, you had to un unlatch all these latches all the way around it. It, it took, you know, four, five, six minutes to get all of that uh, loose and, and opened because you had an inner hatch that opened to the inside, an mm -hmm. outer hatch and then an outer cover. So you get, you get a fire inside the capsule. There's no way you can get out. Right. And it's, right. it's just, that's, that's just what's so interesting about it. If it was Gus's mercury mission mm -hmm. that caused him to take the explosive bolts out. And then he's the one that got killed mm -hmm. from that complex hatch. And they changed that hatch after that. And then, and, and, they didn't have explosive bolts, but you could get it open in about three seconds. So they did cha completely change the design of that. Did they that not, was it, when they designed the new one, did they not take that into consideration? Because I mean, or did they, or were they caught so cocky with these flights? You know, well, like it was with the space shuttle. Cause we got up so many times. Nobody thought in their wildest dreams that the thing was going to blow. Exactly. Um, it's not just a hatch. It was pumping hundred percent oxygen inside that capsule under pressure. Oh, to seal it off. Yeah. And the, during the test, it was a plugs out test, January 27th, 1967. Um, they're in the capsule in spacesuits, hundred percent oxygen pumped into the spacecraft, um, hatches sealed. And the pressure was over 16 pounds per square inch, which is wow. two pounds higher than the outside atmosphere at that elevation on top of the Saturn booster. Mm -hmm. The reason that was the case, they're checking for leaks to make sure there's no leaks in that capsule in any place. But of course, anybody that knows anything about it, simple engineering would tell you that's a bomb. And they knew that. I mean, there were studies, there were tests, they knew what would happen. But the, the issue was they never thought there would be a ignition source anywhere inside. They said, well, there's nothing going to catch on fire. So what is, you know, it, it's not going to happen. And mm -hmm. it didn't. I mean, we did that all through Mercury and Gemini. And then we we're ready for the first Apollo doing this plugs out test. That means the spacecraft running on its own power. It's not plugged into outside sources. And of course, there were a lot of problems with that spacecraft. It was sloppy work, shoddy workmanship, uncovered wires on the on the floor of the spacecraft. And you know, one of them got scuffed and sparked. And that's all it takes in 100 percent oxygen under 16.7 pounds per square inch you have a raging inferno within seconds. I mean, the temperature rose to 1200 degrees, uh, burned through all their suit hoses. I mean, they were, I mean, they were asphyxiated is what happened. The pressure climbed so high, it actually ruptured the hole of the spacecraft. It blew a hole in it and fire started spilling out the side. That's how bad it was. Killed them within seconds. So wow. it's sort of like a perfect storm. Everything right. just sort of came together and, all it takes is one mistake out of millions of moving parts to cause a tragedy. But so the tragedy were, is important because it caused us to re-examine everything and, and realize, hey, we're doing a lot of things wrong. Um, this hunk of junk spacecraft ain't going anywhere. We need to redesign the entire thing. And they did. And didn't they skip flight, flight numbers? 
did, did I read that? That that there was a yeah uh, yeah. They they always counted unmanned tests. Uh, the Gemini program, for example, uh, began at Gemini three. Gus flew the first. Gus Grissom flew the first Gemini mission. It was Gemini three. The first two were unmanned tests. Same thing with Mercury. And that was probably the way it's going to be in Apollo. But Gus Grissom insisted that the first mission be called Apollo one, and it was out, not officially recognized as that until after the fire. Uh, they had a technical uh, number for AS two hundred four, which has got which has to do with the manufacturing and. The, the, the number of the spacecraft that came off the line. It was just a just sort of a, a working uh, number for it. So probably if they had stuck with the same system, it probably wouldn't have been, it would probably be, the, the official number would probably have been Apollo 4 or something like that. But Gus said, I want it to be Apollo 1. Mm-hmm. He actually already had the insignia, uh, the, the, the mission patch made that said Apollo 1. They were wearing them on their, on their, uh, spacesuits but of course nasa after the fire said yeah we're going to officially call this apollo one but the first manned apollo mission that actually got off the ground was apollo seven so all the other ones in between that were tests of the saturn 1b booster the saturn 5 booster they tested the um capsule put it in orbit and then let it come back down so there were a number of unmanned tests that they counted when did they go to uh, more than one astronaut on those flights? Was it, was it with Gemini? Gemini, yeah. Mercury was just a one-man little capsule. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen one in a museum, not so sure I'd have wanted to be in that going around the Earth. There's not a lot of room in there. But Gemini was looks a lot like the Mercury capsule. It's just bigger. It was a two-man thing. But it's still it's it's no different than you and I sitting in the front seat of a sports car. Mm-hmm. And remember, Gemini 7 was a long-distance mission. Right. There, there are two guys that, that went around the Earth for 14 days. So I always tell my students and others, I say, go get in your car and sit in the front seat with somebody and uh, get strapped in and put a helmet on and then imagine sitting there for two weeks. Uh, not me, uh, <laughs> but the Apollo capsule was a little more roomy for three guys. They had a little equipment bay. They could, they, there was, there was places underneath they could stretch out and sleep one or, one or two at a time. So a little bit better. Um, of course, then eventually we got the space shuttle and got a whole, whole lot of room. So yeah, uh, those, those pioneering days though were pretty tough. But that's why they had all the tests they had too, because they were testing them for the, the their mental stability too, because they yeah. were going to be crammed up and, and claustrophobic and stuff. Right when you were when you were particularly in those early days, because there were so many unknowns. That's why they put them so such such crazy tests. If you've seen the right stuff movie in 1983, you know they, all this crazy stuff they did to them because they didn't know. We didn't know anything about space. Uh, some people didn't think humans could operate in space at all. Um, particularly for, you know, two or three weeks, they may not even survive. Um, we just didn't know very, a lot about it. So they put them through a lot of crazy tests, but that was one thing they tested. You would think, well, their military test pilots are used to being claustrophobic, but they mm-hmm. would put them in these little bitty rooms for several days and see who flipped out. Because the last thing you want is somebody orbiting the earth or going to the moon and all of a sudden get claustrophobic and, and flip out on you can't have that. One of the right. reasons why they picked not just military pilots originally, they picked test pilots. And that's a, that's a different breed of pilot there. I mean, these guys are used to getting an untested aircraft every day, not knowing if they're going to get killed that day or not. You know, about a 25% chance they would get killed every time they did it. So that's, that's a special type of astronaut. It's a special type. That's when they call it the right stuff. You can't, we can't really define it. They just have the right stuff to be able to do it. But again, they would they would 
put maybe a hundred candidates through all of these tests, psychological tests and physical tests, medical tests, and they would only pick seven or eight or 10 or 12 or however many they needed for that particular group. So a lot of them didn't make the cut for whatever reason. And there might be a medical reason because they had scientists saying, well, you know, he's got a little heart flutter. We better not. And we just didn't know anything about it. And that's what these guys were doing. We learned more as the programs progressed. I mean, we know a ton more about space and, than we did in the early Mercury days. Here's a quick question. We'll kind of come to the future now. Do you think that, um, because now, you know, essentially, well, at least we're progressing now. For a while there, it looked like when they stopped the shuttle program and then we were going up and, you know, we were coming back from, from the space station in capsules. It kind of looked like we kind of got stagnant there, like, kind of like a step backward. But now things are starting to really roll mm -hmm. as far as the program goes. Oh, yeah. And I think, well, you know, Trump did a lot more for that. But I think also, too, we're, we've got SpaceX and you got and then you got Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's company, Richard Branson's company, because um, in, the, in the old days we had competition from the Soviets. You know, we, we had to win the Cold War. It was, you know, it was a, a philosophical contest, ideological contest as much as it was anything else. <clears throat> but this, I think, you know, SpaceX is doing a lot of good things and, and we'll see what happens this month with Branson and Bezos and some of the others. But. Um, I'm glad to see we're doing uh, what we're doing. And we went back to the original system. We got away from the shuttle system and we've gone right. back to a rocket with a capsule on top, which is the way it should be done. Um, and there's a couple of, uh, I think they've done some, they're planning to do a test, I think, of, of one of the capsules, I think, sometime this year, an unmanned test. Hopefully we'll get it in gear and, and, and get NASA in back in space because I've always thought it was embarrassing that we have to, the United States of America, we have to hitch a ride with the Russians. Yeah. You know, at tens of millions of dollars a pop oh, yeah. to get our get our guys up to the space. Of course, now we're using SpaceX, but I'm hoping we can get our capsule in orbit pretty soon. If anybody's never watched these launches, these test launches from um, uh, SpaceX, it's fascinating because when they bring the when they bring the launch craft back. It's all automatic control. It's not like it's falling out, free falling mm -hmm. in the ocean like it was back in the old days. They, they're actually controlling the thing like a drone and landing it on an aircraft carrier, landing it on a helicopter pad. Oh, yeah. The, the technology and the know-how has progressed tremendously. Um, the technology in these uh, spacecraft are pretty phenomenal. I mean, when you consider the Apollo guidance computer, and if you've seen the movie Apollo 13, you see a lot of the, the use of the guidance computer. Right. Of course, what you see in that movie, which is good, is the guys on the ground using their slide rules and making their calculations. And they call up the spacecraft, the coordinates, because that computer, even though it was top of the line for the day, couldn't calculate trajectory. It could keep mm -hmm. the spacecraft aligned, but it couldn't calculate it. Um, if you have an iPhone. Your average iPhone is 8 million times more powerful than that guidance computer on Apollo. But you look at the technology we're seeing now with SpaceX and, and, and some of these, this is this is top of the line stuff. So it's pretty remarkable. Uh, not only seeing them bring the spacecraft back, but see their booster come back and land on that barge. Yeah, that is incredible. That is what uh, You know, people kind of laugh and didn't think they could pull that off, but they, they've gotten better and better if they hardly miss now. Oh, yeah. And then I remember, too, I remember the first computers. I want to date myself because my mother worked at AT&T at and she took us on a tour and showed us the, the first computers. <laughs> it was crazy. Room after room after room after oh, yeah. room. We used to fill up an entire room. Now, yeah. you know, 
you know, as I said, your, your phone, I, I tell my students all the time, I said, you know, the, the technology you walk around with every day is just phenomenal and, 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 and way past anything I ever thought of when I was in school. You well, know? just like the space shuttle, you know, the mm -hmm. stuff they were using on the space shuttle, you, you had better home computers, oh, absolutely. more powerful mm -hmm. home computers at the time. And they got rid of it, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have. I mean, you're right. really dealing with 1970s technology. Well, yeah, is when it was 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 designed. Um, I know yeah, they sure. probably made some uh, changes and updates, but still, it's 1970s design. I think the I think the dream was like the, the old dream of we were going to like have landing strips on the moon and stuff, which would have been fine. I mean, that would have yeah. been fine for the shuttle, but that never transpired. And so you have to move on from that. And if you go back to the capsule, that's what you're going to have to do, you know, to, to, to reach your goals and stuff. Well, I think, I think we probably could be much further on. You, you think about the team we had together during Apollo. Mm -hmm. um, it was incredible. Um, the people that worked at NASA, the, the contractors and subcontractors, and a lot of people have, have you know thought about that and said you know we were at the height of our technological technological achievement in the late 60s early 70s what if we had kept that same energy and drive and determination in all of these years where would we be today mm -hmm. probably on mars i mean who knows yeah. um, but you know it's 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 got to become cost effective or they're not going to be interested in doing it yeah, um, exactly. Of course, they're talking about a moon base because they think that's the best way to go to Mars is to launch from the moon, and maybe that's the case. So, but it, but I think it's good that the private companies are out there doing that because mm -hmm. they're going to push it more than the government uh, mm -hmm. will. So mm -hmm. I'm all for them. Rah rah rah. I oh, I think it's that. neat. I think it's it's neat to. This is a great age to be in. It's like being back in the Apollo time. Oh it's yeah, it is. It's, it's very exciting. Alive to watch this stuff. I just wish it wasn't so expensive. You know, they, they, they auctioned off a seat on Bezos's flight. What did it go for? 28 million. Yeah. I think the starting bid was 2.8. I said, well, I'm already out of it and I can't even. <laughs> <laughs> so folks like us, we're probably out of it, but uh, somebody asked me lucky. how I would go, but we might be lucky to get on. What was it? That is it the C5. The, the, what's that airplane that, that can go into orbit? Oh yeah. Maybe they'll let us go on that, but yeah, somebody yeah. have some sympathy for kind us. Kind of slow but... for like five seconds, you know, yeah. back down. Yeah, That'd we could that. do that, but I'd be so afraid I'd embarrass myself on you know, TV. <laughs> and... So uh, going back to Apollo 1 then, um, describe for everybody, you know, what the condition, like, like we talked about how crammed they were in, in this mm -hmm. capsule and how big, the, how bulky those suits are for them to be in there too. Yeah, uh, one, one uh, astronaut described the Apollo capsules being like three guys in the front seat of a Volkswagen. Um of course, when they got up into orbit, they would take those suits off and just have the coveralls. And they had, like I said, they had places to store it and they had a little mm -hmm. bit of room to float around and they could lower some of the, the, the crew couches. So they did have uh, more room. They actually could float around rather than just in the Mercury and Gemini days, they were strapped to their seat and really couldn't move. So obviously Apollo was a lot better. It was top of the line. And that's the point with Apollo 1. This was the most sophisticated thing that man had ever tried to build. Now, we may look back at it, like I said, and say, well, that's pretty primitive, but not at the time. It was not. A um, lot, lot of technology in, in going into it. I think the command module itself had 30, over 30 miles of wiring, hundreds of electrical connectors, computers, all kind of stuff. You had to have systems to keep them cool. You had to have systems to keep the environment in the spacecraft livable. You had to store stuff. You had to take food, water, and all these kind of things that went into this very sophisticated machine. Um, 
like like you saw in the movie Apollo 13, you have to have scrubbers for the atmosphere because you'll fill it up with carbon dioxide and pass out. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, every every you know, there's so many things in it. Um, and of course, it was not built by the lowest bidder. I know people like to joke and say, "Well, it's a sophisticated thing." Mm-hmm. No, that's not the way it worked. And I explained that in Apollo One how how the process worked for selecting a company to build these machines. Not the lowest bidder. Um, they're evaluated by a team of engineers and technicians. And they choose the best company to do it. It's not doesn't have anything to do with um, who bids the lowest. I mean, because you don't want crap being built. Um, but of course, that's what we ended up with with Apollo One. I mean, several astronauts and other people in NASA specifically referred to that spacecraft as a bucket of bolts, uh-huh. and it was. Uh-huh. But the fire exposed what was wrong with it, showed us what was wrong with the program, and we were able to 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 redesign it. I I spoke to an engineer for NASA who was on the redesign team. And I quote him several times in the book talking about how much work they put in to it because they stopped the program for almost two years and they worked night and day redesigning that spacecraft. And what they built was a, was a, you know, a wonderful machine that flew to the moon nine times. Mm -hmm. And how long did it take them to, to do the redesign on it? Well, the fire was in January of 1967 we didn't fly until October of 1968. So you're talking about almost two years. Um, it was almost, it was, I think it was a year and a half that they spent because they immediately took the burned out spacecraft. They brought it into a hangar. They took it apart piece by piece. And there was all kind of things. The crew couches were melted. Um, they had to take it apart to try to figure out what caused the fire. They never definitively, concluded because I'll bet the whole thing's burned out. I mean, they didn't really know They they believe it was just a scuffed wire and they believe they know pretty much what area of the spacecraft um, under Gus's couch because the fire was worse on that side and it spread to the other side and it wasn't as bad on that side because once it burns out of the oxygen in that enclosed environment, it's going to go out. It didn't have anything Uh to feed on. Of course, the other problem is that spacecraft was full of flammable materials. Uh Velcro, the adhesive that put, they had wall-to-wall Velcro. That's how that engineer described it to me. He said it was wall-to-wall Velcro. And the adhesive is flammable. The Velcro is flammable. The the crew's spacesuits were flammable. The material on the crew couches were flammable. And and, and, and 100% oxygen will literally soak that, those materials. It'll it'll be soaked in it. Um, Just almost as if it was liquid. I mean, it's highly flammable. Engineers that work around 100% oxygen, they'll tell you if you smoke, don't smoke for several hours because if you if you strike a match, it's going to set yourself on fire because that 100% oxygen soaks into the material of your clothes and wow. your skin. So you can imagine that test had drug on for over five hours. That whole spacecraft was soaked in 100% oxygen. It took one spark to ignite it. So they took it apart to try to figure it out. But then when they were doing that, they realized, okay, this is what we need to change. So they began, engineers began working on how to rebuild the spacecraft and make it better and make it safer. Um, A lot of safety features went into NASA after the fire. I mean, there wasn't any type of fire suppression system or fire extinguisher inside the space. They couldn't have put it out if they wanted to. Uh-huh. Um, like I said, the pressure climbed inside and ruptured the hole. There was no valve they could turn to let the pressure out. Um, there was no way to get off the launch pad if the thing started to blow up. You know, you see, you've seen the, the films and the movies right. where they go up in the elevator. That was the only way up and the only way down. 
Of course, now they've got the, the the wires and the cable with the gondola, and they'll put you in it and sling you away. Right, right. All of that, all of that came about because of the Apollo One fire. So, it, so space travel got a lot safer after that. Still risky. We've seen other accidents. There are always going to be things that's going to happen. We're never going to have a totally accident-free space program. It's just too mm -hmm. dangerous. Interesting. Um, was it was Gus able to get any message out? when the fire started or was it that fast? It was that fast. I mean, I, I've actually, um, the chapter on the fire, I talk about the, and you can listen to the uh, capsule uh, communications if you want mm -hmm. to just, just go to YouTube and, and Google it or, or Google it or go to YouTube and type it in and you can listen to it. It's pretty tough, uh, especially that last couple of seconds, but you don't really hear Gus's Gus and, and Ed White were trying to get the hatch off. Uh, you hear more of Roger Chaffee's voice because his job during an, uh, an accident was to maintain communications. Um, the first thing you hear is either somebody saying, hey, or flames. And then Ed White says, we've got a fire in the cockpit. And then the rest of the voice is um, um, Roger Chaffee. And of course, you can listen to the rest of it because they're, right. they're, they're, they're trying to talk to... Um, the crew they're saying can you egress can you get out um of course it goes silent on their end um mm -hmm. because you hear a you hear a final blood blood curdling scream at the end because these guys are literally on fire um but fortunately they were gone within within seconds the autopsies revealed asphyxiation again the fire burned through their oxygen hoses the only thing they were breathing was toxic smoke so they were gone right. within within seconds so probably not from the fire and flames, probably more from the smoke and toxic gases. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, chances are if it hadn't been the, the toxic gases, they probably could have got those latches off. Sure. I mean, um, they certainly could have if it had explosive bolts or the other other hats they had later. I mean, they could have got them out in seconds and probably uh, saved their lives, some of those uh -huh. safety features. But again, people just didn't think that that would ever happen. They just didn't think that ever right. be an ignition source. Nothing's going to spark inside the spacecraft. But they see they delivered that capsule to Cape Canaveral in August of 1966, and NASA issued a certificate of worthiness. But along with that certificate, I think it was 133 problems that needed to be fixed before they could fly it. And they began to go down that list doing it. So while they're having test after test, um, you've got crews in there taking stuff out, putting it in, um, changing things out. And probably in the course of doing that, uh, you know, one of the wires got scuffed and sparked the fire. Of course, again, as I've said, without the tragedy, we probably wouldn't have made the moon. We certainly wouldn't have made Kennedy's deadline. There's no... Mm -hmm doubt about that. Most of the astronauts contended that because um, there was a disaster waiting to happen with that spacecraft. If it hadn't been the fire, if they'd have tried to fly it, more than likely we would have had a disaster in space, might have lost a crew in space. Mm -hmm. You got to remember, we tend to think that the American public was 100% behind the space program. Always rah, 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 go to the moon. But there was quite a bit of opposition and that opposition built as the program moved forward. You got to remember, NASA was sucking up five percent of the federal budget at the time, about five five billion dollars. That was that was a huge amount, and a lot of people didn't like it. There were members of Congress that didn't like it. They said we're, we need to be spending this on schools and other things. Um, of course, so they but they just kept going. 
And so there was a lot of opposition. After the fire, the opposition actually rose to a majority in one poll to end the program, that it wasn't worth the cost. Mm-hmm. So that was a concern. But they again, they but I think the problem was in the 60s, it was pretty turbulent. You had Vietnam and all that kind of stuff going on. And of course, people, you know, the, the protests in the street and all that kind of stuff happening kind of gave NASA some cover to work for that, you know, 18, 19, 20 months that they had the program stopped and they could redesign everything. That's it. That's very interesting. Um, were, did they put the fire out or did the, did, they, did they have to wait for the fire to go out? Well, when the, when the spacecraft ruptured, the hole ruptured, uh, it actually, cause there's people in the white room. You probably, you know what the white room right. is up at the top. And right. that's where you see the astronauts climbing into the capsule. You have technicians there and engineers when it ruptured, the force knocked everybody off their feet and it, the, the, the flames were, were coming out on the side of the spacecraft. And these guys kind of had to retreat, but a lot of them got together and grabbed their firefighting equipment and got in there and, got, and started spraying it down and getting the fire out. The fire had burned itself out inside, but they had to make sure because the, the, now understand the Saturn booster was not fuel. They don't fuel those things until they're about to go up. But the escape rocket that's on top of on top of the capsule. If you, again, if you've seen uh, Apollo 13, when they get right, in the space, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's designed to if there's an explosion, to pull the spacecraft away and it can parachute back down. That was fuel because it's solid fuel. And the fear was, what makes that? And those right. those rockets together on that escape um, rocket were are more powerful than the redstone rocket that took Shepard and Gerson into space and Mercury. So we're talking about a, a pretty strong uh, explosion there. So that's what they were most concerned with. If, if they don't get the flames out that's spilling out, and if it ignites that uh, tower jet, there's no telling what would have happened. Um, but a number, of the, a number of the crew that was fighting the fire, some of them had to be hospitalized for burns and smoke inhalation. So there was... There was injuries on the on the outside. Some some of them that the, trying to get the hatch open uh, burned their hands, even though they had gloves on it. It was so hot they burned through the gloves. So there were burns and smoke inhalation injuries <clears throat> from the technicians and crew that was trying to put the fire out. It's very interesting. Very very interesting. It's sad. It's sad that these astronauts, you know, had had to be in something inferior to lose their lives. Oh yeah, it is. It's, but and, and and what I like to point out is they didn't die in vain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a, and I have a really good cartoon in the back of, of, of like a newspaper drawing of Armstrong putting the flag on the moon, but it's got the ghosts of Grissom, White, and Chaffee putting it up as well because uh, we wouldn't have made it without them. I, I don't believe we would have made it at all. And so they they've been given credit for that, and they should be given credit. So they didn't die in vain. The program moved forward just like they wanted it to. They all gave an interview, a national televised interview you know, before the test. And all of them were asked that question, and all of them said the same thing. You keep going. The program should go forward. This is If we die, this is just part of it. Now, don't right. shut it down because somebody dies. Mm-hmm. Um, keep it going. Now, Roger Chaffee even said, this is our business. This is what we do. We, we do this. We have to see if this thing's going to work. And the only way we're going to see that is if we climb inside of it and fly so they were of that opinion. Were the wives present for the test or not? No, they were actually at home and had to be told. I actually go into the wives. Uh, I included them. They should be included. 
I talk about the wives several times, the wives of the astronauts in general, what they had to endure and go through and <clears throat> what they did on a daily basis because their husbands worked 25 hours a day, eight days a week on the space program. And the wives were building the homes and running the household and tending to the kids and things like that. But no, they had to be told um, NASA sent people to tell them. <clears throat> and of course, NASA was a little um, reluctant to put out a full statement to the media. They wanted to make sure the wives were told and understood what happened before they turned the TV on or the radio on and find out, oh, you know, we had a fire. So they, they were sensitive to that. So the first statements that they put out to the media were very, very vague. And that was a reason why they weren't lying. They just, we, we would like to tell the wives uh, before they find out about it from Walter Cronkite. Um, that wouldn't have been good. So they actually sent astronauts because um, these, these guys were very tight. The women were very tight. Actually, the, the women had their own little saying, their own little community. They call it togethersville. You know, they're all together in this and they support each other. So some of the astronauts went and got their wives and said, we got to go tell Betty Grissom and Pat White and Martha Chaffee uh, what happened. That's a tough duty. I, I wouldn't want to do it, but, you know, that's part of it. Oh, absolutely. So the media wasn't at this the, 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 this 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 thing, were they? Yeah, there were there were members of the media there. There were, uh, um, uh, of course, North American Aviation built the spacecraft, so their their people were there. A lot of people were there. Um, of course, they had to NASA had to move and shut everything down before the word got out. Uh, I was going to say they put the cap on it. Yeah. If you've if you've seen the movie First Man, you probably have the Neil Armstrong biopic. That's probably the best uh, episode on the fire that I've seen as far as Hollywood. And you see uh, Neil Armstrong and other astronauts that are at the White House at the time. That's actually true. They were they were actually signing an international space treaty at the time the test was going on um, to make sure that space was not militarized, that it would be for peaceful purposes. So you had ambassadors and dignitaries. And, of course, President Lyndon Johnson's there and there's astronauts there and they're having a little reception. And that's when they were told. And, of course, NASA told those astronauts, get out of the White House, go back to your hotel, shut the door, lock it, and don't talk to anybody. You know, don't, mm -hmm. the media's going to start beating your door down wanting to know. And we don't even know what's happened. So, you know, zip it before somebody says the wrong thing. And that's not being totalitarian. That's just, you know, uh, you don't want to go put out a bunch of crazy stuff when we don't even know what had happened. Mm -hmm. So there was, a, there was an effort to do that. There was an effort to make sure the right information got out. And I think that's good. I don't think that's a bad thing. Because no, conspiracy theories, you know, cropped up later. Uh, well, the Russians snuck in there and, set, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. So right. that's what they were trying to keep down. Well, plus for the wives and the families, they just didn't need to hear that stuff either. I mean, they, 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 you know, they need to find out first to get it straight from NASA. Yeah, they wanted to make sure that. And, and, and again, they, they reached out to the astronauts who were closest to those particular uh, astronauts and their families. Do you mind going over there and sitting with them? Of course, their test pilots had come up through the military and they were used to people getting killed. It, you know, it was not unknown, but that's still a tough thing, particularly for pilots. Pilots don't want to get killed on the ground. They'll all tell you that. Um, and that's what happened to these guys. You know, they, you know, they would tell you better. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather buy the farm in the air or, you know, get lost mm -hmm. in space than I would dying on the ground during a, a route, what, what they considered a routine test. Right, 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 right. Question from the uh, chat room is, were the uh, widows and kids taken care of? 
Oh, yeah, they, they took care of them. Of course, Betty Grissom uh, sued North American Aviation uh, because they're the ones that built it. And she got criticized for that. I, I don't criticize her um, for that because, you know, when you get a, when you, when you get a uh, manufacturer that builds um, a bad car and it kills you, I mean, you're going to sue them. And they paid her and the other and the other families. Um, I think it's about three hundred fifty thousand, which would have been several million dollars today. So mm-hmm. they were they were taken care of and by NASA as well. They didn't they didn't get they didn't get dumped uh, at all. Interesting. And what in, in leading up to this, like like you talked about the 25 hours of training, how did they choose Gus to lead this? Because the, the, there were obviously other astronauts. Was it a pool thing or was it just somebody, you know, one of the talking heads at NASA in charge, to, you know, decided that Gus was going to be the commander on this thing? Well, the, 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 the chief of flight crew operations was Deke Slayton. Deke Slayton, Deke Slayton was an original Mercury astronaut. Right. And he lost his... Uh, seat on the mercury mission because he had a uh his heart skipped a beat and they again those days they were concerned about that so he was not allowed to fly he eventually flew in 1975 in his only mission but um he was uh, given the title chief astronaut and then he was put in charge of flight crew operations so he was in charge of picking the crews for all the missions deke slayton and of course he's always going to be sympathetic to original mercury guys right. and so gus was the leader in gemini and so he was the natural to be the first apollo and it would have made gus grissom the first man to go into space three times um of everybody russians us anybody um so he was a natural and and i also talk about this in the book um a lot of people believe if apollo one had been successful if everything had gone right the spacecraft would have been great we would have continued on gus grissom would have been the first man on the moon not neil armstrong Interesting. Uh, it's not not it's not it's not official, but a lot of people have said that they had already talked about they wanted an original Mercury astronaut to put the first step on the moon, and, and Gus Grissom was the was the logical choice. You got to remember, Alan Shepard was out. He had a, a Meniere's disease that didn't get corrected till later, so he was out. Uh, John Glenn had retired; uh, he mm-hmm. was not there anymore. Scotty Carpenter and Gordo Cooper in the doghouse. Deke Slayton. Um, uh, couldn't fly. Wally Sherrall was the only one uh, left besides Gus. So Gus was probably the natural one to do that. And that, that, that was that was the that was the story that he was going to be the first man on the moon, which probably would have happened. Yeah, that was going to be a question I, I asked is, you know, his movement within, you know, the uh, because I had heard that after the thing with with Gemini that he had been kind of put on a back burner. And that's yeah, why I was curious. Well, yeah, Mer- and Mercury, yeah. But he, 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 but he fought his way back and he was such a good engineer. Uh, they, and I talk a lot about that. So if, if the the folks listening to this are interested in the, in the astronauts themselves, Mm -hmm. Gus Grissom, Ed White, Roger Chaffee, I talk a lot about their biographies in the book and, and their lives and things. And Gus was such a phenomenal engineer that he, after Mercury kind of gravitated over to Gemini and started working on that spacecraft. And, really didn't let it bother him. I mean, he answered the questions. They, they, they basically concluded, yeah, it's probably technical. So he kind of worked himself out of the doghouse and he was so instrumental in, in with Gemini. Cause you got to remember the Mercury capsule was so primitive. It couldn't maneuver. I mean, you could maneuver its orientation, but you couldn't change orbits. Right. 
And that's what you had to be able to do to, to, to for rendezvous and docking. If you if you can't rendezvous and dock, then we can't go to the moon. So that's part of what Gemini was able to do. So the Gemini spacecraft was able to maneuver and change orbits. And he was a big part of that. That's they nicknamed it the Gus Mobile because he was so instrumental in the design of that whole spacecraft. So that sort of redeemed him because the Gemini space program was so successful. Um, 10 missions in about 20 months. And there were a few close calls. Uh, Neil Armstrong's Gemini 8 mission spun out of control. Uh, there, was some, there was some problems, but all of the missions were successful. And Gus got a lot of credit for that. So he had redeemed himself by Apollo. Uh, and he was, he was probably the senior man um, in the astronaut corps. Well, that was a question I had had about, because um, I remember with the... Uh, with the uh, uh, the Mercury program, how they were upset because the the pilot couldn't literally fly the thing. Yeah, Wally Shira called it a it's a human in space, not a pilot in space, uh -huh. uh, because you're you're really not doing much flying. You're just uh -huh. flying around the Earth, and um, of course, Gordo Cooper's mission, the last Mercury mission, Gordo Cooper was the last American to go into space alone by himself, and uh, his his uh, they pushed that Mercury spacecraft is operating on batteries to its limit. I think he made, he made, well, I didn't think he made 22 orbit, orbits around the earth and that whole thing shut down. I mean, it just, you know, it just ran out of power. He had to steer that thing down by himself with his just rich watch and looking out the window and orient the spacecraft. And he did it, you know, flawlessly made the most perfect landing. Um, that's why it had to be military test pilots. Not that regular pilots couldn't have done that, but, Add the element of pressure to it uh -huh. that if I get this wrong, I'm, I'm toast, literally toast. Um, you had to have people that could work under that type of pressure. And of course, after the mission, uh, President Kennedy was so praiseworthy of Cooper um, and how well he had done. But other than that, yeah, you're right. It's just a it's a it's a garbage can in space going around <laughs> the earth. But Gemini was was a piloted craft. Right. Particularly when they we put two spacecraft up, Gemini six and seven, and used those to rendezvous. I mean, you're going seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour, and they get within a few inches of each other. Um, you got to be pretty skilled to do that. Uh, you, you crash into each other at seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. Ain't gonna be much left. No, 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 no. I was thinking about Gordon Cooper from from the right stuff. You know, when you were saying how he's looking out the window to line up, and when he's driving to Edwards, you know, he looks at his wife and he says, "Who's yeah. the best test yeah. pilot you ever seen?" Yeah. You know, yeah, those guys had a cockiness about them, but you can understand that um, to do what they do, yeah. to go out there and get in an airplane that nobody's ever flown. We don't know what this thing's going to do when I, you know, when I fire it off and take off. Same thing with a with a capsule. You're sitting on top of, and with the Saturn V, you're sitting on top of millions of pounds of very high explosives. If the Saturn V blew up, it would be the equivalent of a small nuclear device that had gone off. So uh, not only is it, it a sophisticated machine, you're going into space, it's very uh, not very hospitable at all. Uh, they do a spacewalk in a, in a place that's, you know, two or 300 degrees in the sunlight and you know, minus 250, 300 degrees in shadow. Um, you got to be a special breed of person to do that. Interesting. How long did it take you to write the book? Uh, I, I think I, I signed the, the contract in the, in the late fall of uh, 
I mean, let's see. The, yeah, there it is. There it is. Um, the late fall of, uh, I think it'd be about nine months. Um, I, I had about a year to do it, but I got it done in about nine months. And that was, I wrote it through the COVID stuff. Uh-huh. So <laughs> uh, I had a lot of time to work, you know, I, I, I I teach, they, they put all my classes at online classes. So I didn't have to go to school every day and, and teach. So I just, I just worked on it every day and got it done in about nine months. What about the research? What kind of research went into it? Uh, a ton. I, I read a ton of memoirs. That's one thing I wanted to be able to do was to update this story. Um, nobody's really looked at it in a number of years. And there are a number of astronaut memoirs there are a number of oral histories that have been done um, over the years. And the guys talked a lot about the fire. And so mm-hmm. NASA has a ton of oral histories. They've done not with just astronauts, but engineers and people that worked in mission control. And so I had to read through a lot of that kind of stuff. I, you know, I read the official Apollo review board report, um, but a lot, a lot. So I got a lot of primary sources um, involved in this. I got as many primary sources as I could possibly get. And of course, interviews. I talked to some interviews. I, I, I interviewed uh, Gus Grissom's brother, uh, who's still alive. Uh, he and I are, are pretty close. We uh, converse a lot. I, I, I talked to Ed White's daughter, who lives uh, near me in Dallas. So I, I did talk. I talked to NASA engineers. I talked to a guy who worked in mission control during the fire because they were monitoring it from Houston. So I, I talked to as many people that would talk to me and you'd be surprised at people that did not want to talk about it. They just said, that's just too painful. And it has been over 50 years, but there's a lot of people that just did not want to talk about it. And that's okay. I mean, I understand that. I didn't expect uh, a lot, some, everybody to talk to me, but I tried to talk to as many people as I could. Is that all freedom of uh, information stuff now too? I mean, there's nothing blacked out or anything. (sighs) Well, I talked to a few people who said they still had records that, that, they wouldn't let anybody see the spacecraft itself still exists. They didn't junk it. It's actually in a hangar in Langley, Virginia, which they ain't going to let me go near that. either. <laughs> uh, I thought about asking, but you know, I, I know some people that have tried. Um, and some people have told me there's records that they don't, that they haven't unsealed. And I'm sure that's probably the case. I didn't, I didn't want to do a book like that. I, I, I wasn't right. trying to um, get into a, a fight with the federal government or NASA mm-hmm. about this. I, I really wanted to do a positive portrayal really to keep the memory of these astronauts alive uh, so that people won't forget the tragedy. They won't forget how important it was to get into the moon because again, we don't make Kennedy's deadline without it. And my contention in the book is we don't make it at all. I think right. with the opposition, a disaster in space, losing a crew in space. I think that would have been enough to, because there were a lot of people that wanted to, to shut it down. But well, you know, also, they well, also like having it in the hangar like that, it's kind of like the Titanic, right. you know, that people died on there. It, it, it's a sacred thing. You know what? It's a, they just don't want people poking around it. Well, that's true. And, and Gus Grissom's brother told me he's got an idea. Um, I don't know if they'll ever do it. He wants them to out the pad where it happens is still there in the cave. They haven't torn it down. And yeah, well, you can do a tour. They actually take you out there. He wanted to to bury it there where the pad uh-huh. is sort of have a, a an official burial and actually put it in the ground and tomb it in the ground. I said, that's probably a, a really good idea. 
So Mr. Lowell Grissom, that's his name. You can find him on Facebook. He's a great guy. And he actually mm -hmm. just got approved there. You know, there's no memorial at Arlington National Cemetery for Apollo 1. There is for Challenger in Columbia, but not wow. Apollo 1. But he just got approval from Arlington National Cemetery to put a memorial there because Gus and Roger Chaffee are buried at Arlington. Ed White's buried at West Point. He went to the military academy at West Point. So he wanted to be buried there. So, but there will be soon uh, an Apollo 1 memorial at Arlington. And I think that's, that's a good thing. One question I had, I know this is kind of morbid, but I guess, I guess, I guess the bodies were in there after it burned, right? There, 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 there was enough left for them to do an autopsy. Yeah, yeah there was. Um, and they left him in there for several hours, a while before they could get in there and get him out. I want to say it was seven or eight hours before they could get him out. Um, Cause it was just completely destroyed. You can Google it and look sure. at the pictures and, um, everything melted in there. And of course they realized the fire, as I said earlier, was worse on Gus's side. Mm -hmm. It was about 40% of his spacesuit was burned and destroyed. Um, wow. and then of course the middle couch was Ed White and then Roger Chaffee was on the other side and only about 15% of Roger's suit was. So they knew the fire and the damage on Gus's side was far worse. So by the right. time it got to Roger Chaffee's side, it'd run out of oxygen and material. And so it went out. And that's how they surmised it happened. It happened yeah, near right. around Gus. Yeah. There was a there's a, a piece of equipment called the environmental control system that was right under Gus's couch that regulates the temperature uh, in the crew cabin. They had problem after problem, which I detailed in the book, and they were constantly taking that thing out, putting the new one in, taking it out, working on it, putting it back. And they think open and closing that door scuffed wires underneath, and that's probably the likely outcome. One engineer was pretty. It's 100% certain that's exactly what happened. So again, we can't 100% know, but that's I think that's that's right. That's pretty that's pretty much the the, the right answer. Well, that's all it would take. I mean, especially like yeah. you're saying, in an environment like that, all it takes yeah. is one spark. And we don't do that now. Uh, that's one thing that was changed. Nobody does that. SpaceX, those, they're not going to put 100% oxygen. I think the International Space Station is about an 80-20 mix. It's not 100%. Because, again, the early days, they thought we had to breathe 100% oxygen in space, right. so they'll get the bins and all of that. But they figured out we can get by with about 80-20, and that's a, that's a big difference. That's, that's much less flammable. And you know what fascinates me, too, is um... – even in the old days, uh, the old days when these guys would come back, well, even now when they come back, and the ones that can't, you know, it's like it's, it's like a sailor that's been out on a boat for a, a ship for a long time. And my dad used to tell me stories about this when they when they come off the ship, they they'd fall because because yeah. they're used to being on the sea. And I think for these astronauts, and I see them exercise like on the on the space station, they're exercising now to keep the strength up. But in the early flights, they didn't do that, so they had to ha they had to help them on, literally walk. Yeah. Go look at the videos from Gemini 7, uh, 14 days, because they that was part of Gemini's uh, mission. Gemini was the bridge between Mercury and Apollo, and they had to perfect the skills needed to go to the moon. One of them was long-duration mission. Can we survive 14 days in space? Mm -hmm. And those guys get off, and you, you can see how they're walking. But when you consider the International Space Station – and you may be up there six months or a year. Right. You know your muscles and, and and the bones in your body start you start losing that. So they have to exercise every right. day because they you know they, of course I think you know you see these movies these guys be on the space station for a year year and a half and they get out and just kind of trot off and, and I just laugh. I think <laughs> no, you're not you're not going to do that after eighteen months of weightlessness. No. 
Um, Plus, they're probably going to eat a lot of protein while they're, while they're up there, too. Right. And, of course, in the old days, remember, I don't, I don't want to get graphic here, but you're in an enclosed space. You have to go to the you have to go to the bathroom. And so they tried to, you know, regulate their diet so that wouldn't happen a lot. But, you know, I tell well, you, look, you know, what, you know, look what happened to Shepard yeah. on his first flight. Yeah, right. 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 People yeah. don't realize. Guys. Yeah. You don't realize what happened to Alan Shepard because they had a he had drank a bunch of coffee before he got in the capsule and then, then there was delay after delay and he had to go and he went boy and, and, they, the and they never considered that because it was a fifteen minute flight yeah but so he, he sat up there for hours yeah he had to go in the space because now yeah. they have ways to do that but you know <laughs> you know but there's other way there's other things you have to relieve yourself of it's not just that but right exactly they, they, they had a they they would about two weeks before the flights they would. Uh, eat a diet um, that would uh, limit that. Because if you're sitting in one of these capsules and you have to do, <laughs> and people say, well, in a Gemini capsule, my student, one of my students said, well, how did you go to the bathroom? And I said, you just win. There's no modesty. I mean, you just, I mean you've just got to do your business. You got to go. You got to uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> you got to go. I mean, you know, yeah. And I don't, you know, but it's interesting because I like to, you know, have fun with my students. And I said, I'll just, I'll just say this one point. Um, there's no gravity in space, so nothing falls. So just use your imagination when you have to go. <laughs> nothing falls. So that was a, a, a point in the early days. They didn't think we could eat in space because the food wouldn't go down. Right. It'd float back out. Right. Which doesn't happen, but that's how ignorant we were in those early days. We, we just right. had no idea about eating. What can we eat? Um, so the early space food was just, you know, terrible. That's why Gus Grissom and John Young snuck a corned beef sandwich on Gemini 3. Yeah, that was they, the tube stuff. They'd be, they were sucking on the well, tubes up there, boy, sucking stuff yeah. down their throats, man. Yeah, it, it's bad, bad stuff. Just like the poor monkey. It's just, just like the poor chimpanzees, you know, they're yeah. shooting stuff down their throats. You know what? This hour blew by. This was so fun and fascinating. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Yeah, I had a good time. I appreciate it very much. And maybe if it's okay, we can get you on in the future to talk talk about more space, especially yeah. you know, once they get all these launches done and everything. You know, yeah, that, any, that anytime, anytime. Okay. I'd be happy to do it. Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. But again, thank you so much. I enjoyed myself. It was fun talking to another space nut like me. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I enjoyed all being right. here. You have a good uh, a good rest of the weekend. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Wow, for a for a space nut like me, this was this was the ultimate. Anyhow, I thank you so much, and I thank you guys for coming in on your uh, weekend off. Because I know people have a lot of people have today off, but I I really enjoyed this, and I hope you did too. And I hope you learned a little bit about what those poor astronauts had to go through in, in, in the early days of the space program, because it was it it was something. And uh, tomorrow. Our first Tuesday, well, not our first Tuesday doing a show, but our first Tuesday that we're going to be doing multi-shows. I've got a gentleman coming on named Mike Patterson who had an encounter with the Sasquatch at the age, I believe, of 14, 12 or 14. And since then, he had been really intrigued by what he saw. So he kept going back and going back to see if he could find more Sasquatch. And uh, over the years, he did. And... He's got some very interesting recordings of voices of the Sasquatch that he's, he's recorded. He's done, he's, he's done a lot of research, and he runs a page on Facebook called, uh, I believe it's Ontario Sasquatch. 
And um, he's got a lot of interesting evidence there. But what stands out are the voices. Um, I had the gentleman uh, from Sierra, from they call Sierra Sounds Out, uh, from the Sasquatch voices up around Sonora, up here in California. And to me, the voices kind of sounded um, Asian when the Sasquatch were talking back and forth. But I think you're going to be in for a surprise tomorrow because if, if what Mike has gathered is true, it is going to set everything on its ear about what we know about you know this myth for Sasquatch. So uh, it's a good show to look forward to tomorrow. On Wednesday, we're going to be here, and we are going to have a, demon, a guest who's a demonologist come on. And she's been do, doing de, working demonology for years with her husband, who has now passed away. And uh, combined, they have like 80 years of experience handling de, demonology cases. So that's going to be a pretty good show. Now our numbers. We talked about the numbers the last show. We talked about the numbers at the beginning of this show. Our numbers are rising. It's exciting to watch them rise. Finally, we worked real hard to do this. But I can't do it without you guys sharing. Share with five, six people. You know, tell them about the show. You like the show? Share it. You don't like the show? Share it. Because we, you know, we're trying to build our audience, and, and it's starting to work. You know, it's been a slow process, and um, I'm getting really excited here. And I'm trying to do more things. You know, you know, that's why I'm adding more shows so we can build even more. Also, you see that little ticker thing moving at the bottom? Well, like I said, uh, California Haunts is a nonprofit organization, and uh, every dime we make goes into buying new equipment and other things, and also this show, the internet costs, the uh, service for StreamYard costs, and uh, you know my, my website costs that, that we have. So um, anything you could donate would be great, you know, to to help keep us going. And like I said, I I still I want to do another thank you to Pat Yote. Uh, Monica Funk and T some use for donating the past couple months because every little bit helps. And so this is just wonderful. And again, we're going to get our Patreon up and running. I finally got the stuff I need for that. Um, t-shirts. You guys can, if you want t-shirts, you can purchase those on the website at www.californiahauntsradio.com. Also any shows that you've missed, I'm going to be updating June. I haven't got June done, but I'll have June all updated. Plus this show, and see a replay of this show, and then go back through the archives. You can go all the way back to September for these shows. So um, it's a good place to check that out. Let's see. Did I forget anything? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. T-shirts, right? And I'm also thinking about sunglasses. If you guys be, be willing to wear California Hunt sunglasses, if I can get that put together. So anyway, um, I want to thank you all for coming today. And I will see you tomorrow, because I'm excited about it. I know... You guys are getting excited for these shows, and uh, thanks so much. You know, I know it's a holiday weekend, and I'm trying to try and move this as I move. There we go. I know this is a holiday weekend, and everybody, you know, had had things to do, and uh, it was gracious of you to come. So I want to say good night, and I will see you tomorrow at six twenty-five or six thirty, whenever you get on to do this. Bye bye. <laughs>